Hello, and welcome to the February 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Interim Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive pu- monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Uh, Before we go any further, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying us, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, ready to start, Art? Sure. All right, so we're going to start with the big news from the February issue concerning the decision from the Ninth Circuit in SmithKline Beecham Corp v. Abbott Laboratories. Art, this is a case that was probably not on the radar for many of our listeners before the Ninth Circuit decided it. Did the case have anything to do with gay rights when it started? No, and technically it still doesn't. It's an (laughs) antitrust case between two big pharmaceutical companies about the pricing of HIV drugs. Uh, But what happened is during jury selection in this case, uh, it came out quickly during the voir dire that one of the potential jurors was a gay man because of references he made to his same-sex partner. Uh, And... uh, the defendant in this case, Abbott Laboratories, would obviously be concerned because it was being attacked for taking actions that had uh, increased the price of HIV-related medications. Uh, that's, that's the essence of the antitrust case against it by Smith, Klein, Beecham. Uh, so you would imagine that Abbott would be concerned about having a juror who might have a bias about uh, a defendant who is charged with raising the price of HIV drugs. So uh, certainly during the voir dire, questions were asked uh, once it was clear that uh, this potential juror was a gay man. Uh, did he know people with AIDS? Did he know people who were using the medication, et cetera, et cetera? And it turned out that he, you know, from, from the things he said, it's possible that one could come up with a justification for striking him from the jury. But the uh, attorney for Abbott Laboratories just wanted to use a peremptory challenge which means a challenge that doesn't have to be explained. Uh, in civil litigation, uh, the, the lawyers have the right to strike a certain number of jurors without any explanation. And Abbott's uh, counsel decided to do this. Even though the Smith-Klein uh, Beecham counsel raised an objection and said he should have to uh, show a reason because it was clear that the potential juror was gay and it would be discriminatory. And under California law, Uh, a decision dating back uh, more than a decade in the California Court of Appeals says that you can't use a peremptory to strike a gay juror uh, if it seems that that's the reason you're striking them because they're gay. If if the context suggests that, you have to come up with a reason connected to the case showing that they have some kind of bias. So this is how con law sort of comes into jury selection. Right. right? It it dates back to the Batson decision. Uh, These are called Batson challenges as a result of that. Uh, a decision from uh, 1986 uh, taking on, the Supreme Court taking on the common practice in criminal cases where there was a black defendant of prosecutors using peremptories to keep black people off the jury. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, you, you can't discriminate based on race in using peremptory challenges. They said, if you want to keep a black juror off the panel, uh, you have to give a good reason that's related somehow to their qualifications to serve, uh, showing a bias, a family connection, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, past dealings with the criminal justice system can, can serve as a, a basis for uh, a cause challenge to a juror. So the Batson case focused on race. In a subsequent case, the court extended Batson to sex. Uh, 
and the court explained that for any equal protection category that requires heightened scrutiny, a peremptory challenge uh, would be suspect uh, because uh, heightened scrutiny applies when we have reason to believe that discrimination is at work. That's what heightened scrutiny is about. Uh, and so in any attempt to exclude somebody because of a characteristic that is the basis of a suspect classification, for example, uh, the attorney uh, would have to use one of their cause challenges, not a peremptory challenge, would have to come up with an explanation. So in this case, the trial judge said, well, look, Batson just applies to race and sex, and I'm also unsure whether it applies in civil litigation, although it seems clear from lower federal court decisions that it does. So the, the trial judge allowed Abbott to use a peremptory challenge. And the case went to the jury, and uh, it was a mixed verdict, but I think both sides were appealing, actually. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, uh, arguing on appeal, Smith Klein said, we're entitled to a new trial because a gay juror was eliminated using a peremptory. And the Supreme Court has held in Batson and subsequent litigation that if an otherwise qualified juror was excluded using a peremptory challenge in violation of the Batson rule, a new trial was the remedy. Uh, so uh, in this case, the Ninth Circuit decided, well, the trial judge is wrong. It does apply in civil litigation, and it applies to sexual orientation if we determine that sexual orientation discrimination requires heightened scrutiny, because that's what the Supreme Court said in the case about sex discrimination. So now we have to figure it out. And uh, this is an issue that we've been litigating about for decades now. Uh, there have been a few nibbles at it by other courts. In the Windsor case, the Second Circuit actually used heightened scrutiny. Right, right, right. Uh, and, uh, this particular judge is, uh, was on the Prop 8 case before the Ninth Circuit, correct, Judge Reinhardt? Uh, yeah, he, he was he was the, on the Ninth Circuit panel yeah. in in the so uh, Prop case. He's somewhat case. familiar with. Uh, uh, I think he's more than somewhat right. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Reinhardt. Judge Reinhardt was also involved in the Perry Watkins case, which is a military case yeah. back in the nineties, uh, in which the issue of heightened scrutiny came up. So uh, Judge Reinhardt says, "Okay, Justice Kennedy never mentions in the Windsor decision what level of scrutiny he's using." He just scrutinizes. Right. Or in any of the gay rights cases. Right. right. In Romer, in Lawrence. Uh, Kennedy writes these cases without using the normal terms of uh, constitutional analysis that we're all taught in law school in right. our common law courses. He just sort of – he's off on his own here. <laughs> uh, well, different people have different theoretical explanations of what he's doing. But Reinhardt looks at the Windsor decision and says, let's not look at what the court says. Let's look at what it does. And what does it do? It strikes down – a provision that discriminates. Sexual orientation is sort of the ground of the discrimination, although some people analyzing the case have said it's not sexual orientation. It's between different sex couples and same sex couples, which isn't necessarily sexual orientation, although most of the time it is. But uh, Reinhardt for the Ninth Circuit, a uh, unanimous panel here, says it looks to us like it was a heightened scrutiny case because of the way the court handled it, uh, because they. Uh, put the burden on the government to justify the discrimination because they went beyond sort of the surface and looked underneath to see why was DOMA passed. And normally the court doesn't really inquire into the reasons why a statute that's challenged is passed if it's just a rational basis case. Uh, they just ask, is there any hypothetical justification for the statute that we think is adequate? Uh, and uh, in this case, they did a little probing. 
they, they look at legislative history, they analyze the title of the statute, the context in which it was passed, and they said clearly the statute was motivated by animus against gay people. Uh, if not actual animus by the legislators, at least a belief by legislators it was politically advantageous for them to cast a vote uh, on the statute uh, because of the unpopularity of gay people or moral disapproval of homosexuality or of same-sex unions. Uh, so in any event, uh, the Ninth Circuit concluded that Windsor used heightened scrutiny, and therefore the past Ninth Circuit decisions that had rejected heightened scrutiny would no longer be followed. I mean, normally, a, a three-judge panel is bound by prior circuit precedent, but not if in the interim the Supreme Court has cast that prior precedent right. in doubt. Now, why is it such a big deal outside the gay juror context? Well, first of all, it means that any... Uh, challenge to a government policy that discriminates based on sexual orientation in the Ninth Circuit will be subject to heightened scrutiny. But more directly, in terms of the ongoing marriage struggle, which we'll be talking about shortly, there is an appeal pending in the Ninth Circuit from a trial court decision in Nevada rejecting a challenge uh, to a same-sex marriage ban in Nevada's constitutional and statutory law. This is pending before the Ninth Circuit, and now all of a sudden it's a heightened scrutiny case. And actually, the Attorney General of Nevada sort of freaked out because the day that she had to file her responsive brief in that Ninth Circuit case was the day the Ninth Circuit issued this decision. <laughs> so the brief was filed basically defending the trial court's decision. The trial court in, in the Nevada case had said, I'm controlled by Baker versus Nelson, that old 1972 Supreme Court uh, summary affirmance of a Minnesota Supreme Court decision rejecting a, a claim to same-sex marriage where the Supreme Court said it didn't present a substantial federal question. Mm -hmm. And I'm bound by that, said the trial judge. And furthermore, in the Ninth Circuit, sexual orientation discrimination is subject to rational basis, and I think that the legislature had a rational basis for this ban. Uh, so that's on appeal uh, by the uh, plaintiffs in the case. They filed their brief already, uh, presumably arguing for heightened scrutiny and, and trying to use Windsor. And the attorney general had responded by saying, well, no, no, the test in the Ninth Circuit is rational basis, and here's our argument for rational basis. And also Baker versus Nelson is controlling. And it's clear now the Ninth Circuit has rejected that idea. So uh, the attorney general said, well, you know, we're going to have to have a big conference in the, uh, in the state law department and decide whether we have to submit a new brief because the brief we submitted is clearly inadequate. Oh, yeah. So, And in addition to that uh, pending appeal, there are district court marriage equality cases on file now in the Ninth Circuit in Arizona, Oregon, and Idaho. And presumably those will be facing uh, summary judgment motions soon. Yeah. And with heightened scrutiny, uh, we've got a good shot at all of them. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Art. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll move on to other marriage equality litigation developments from a neighboring federal circuit, the Tenth. We're back talking about the latest marriage equality litigation developments out of Utah and Oklahoma. Let's start in Utah, Art. Uh, when we left off in the last podcast, I actually think the morning of that podcast, uh, the state of Utah had not yet decided how to treat the couples that did get married uh, before the Supreme Court stepped in and entered a stay. And what did the get, uh, governor of Utah end up saying about recognition? Well, uh, actually, first the attorney general yeah. said, you know, we can't figure this out. There's no precedent for this situation, so I'm not sure. 
And then the governor, uh, through his uh, chief of staff, issued a directive to state agencies. And in this directive, they said, during the period of the stay, our existing constitutional and statutory ban on recognizing same-sex marriages stays in effect. Therefore, we can't recognize them. This was the position of the governor. Uh, but within days, the state tax department had seemingly contradicted him because they pointed out that under Utah law, your tax filing status is determined on December 31st. <laughs> and it seems that on December 31st, more than a 1,000 same-sex couples had gotten married. Right. And uh, at the time, the state was recognizing their marriages. So they had recognized same-sex marriages on December 31st, and the tax department said they have to file as married. Yeah just like they have to file their federal return as married. Although that wasn't totally clear either. You know, would the federal government recognize these marriages right. during the period of the stay? Uh, Attorney General Holder said yes. Right. And uh, gay rights advocates had uh, sent letters to attorney generals and other states that have marriage equality and said, please go on record as to whether you are going to recognize Utah marriages. Yeah. Now, whether New York recognizes Utah marriages is a matter of indifference, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think people from New York were going to Utah to get married during right. December. <laughs> right. I think they could get married in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe if they were on a ski vacation. You know, so. <laughs> right. But, uh, but in any event, several state attorney generals did issue statements saying, oh, yes, we're going to recognize those Utah marriages. Yeah. Uh, but Utah is not except for tax purposes, and then only for the ones who are married as of December 31st. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the ACLU of Utah had started to get calls from people and uh, rounded up some plaintiffs and filed the lawsuit in state court yeah. claiming that this violates the due process and equal protection rights of those who got married. Yeah. Uh, they said, well, they have valid Utah marriages as of the time they were contracted. And once you're married, the state can't put your marriage on hold. Right. I mean, they said, you have vested rights. Yeah. Once you're married, you have vested rights. Uh, for the state to recognize that marriage. After all, the state gave you a license. Yeah. So uh, that case is now pending in the state courts. Okay. And, you know, people might say, well, what does it matter? The the uh, Tenth Circuit's going to decide pretty quickly. Uh, then it'll go to the Supreme Court. Well, you know, the Tenth Circuit has scheduled oral arguments in this case for April 10th. Mm -hmm. All right. Then if there are reasonably fast circuits, some circuits take a lot of time, some circuits pride themselves of being up on their docket and issuing opinions within 60 days or 90 days of an argument. But let's say, you know, two or three months, we're talking about summer already for the Tenth Circuit. Then uh, if the Tenth Circuit rules in favor of marriage equality, the state will file a cert petition, and the Tenth Circuit, undoubtedly picking up from what the Supreme Court did on January 6th, will issue a stay. And so those marriages will still be on hold as far as the state is concerned. And a cert petition with the Supreme Court that goes in during the summer or, you know, late summer would probably be acted on by the Supreme Court within the first few weeks of its term, which means granting review. But by the time the Supreme Court starts meeting in the fall, uh, they already have a schedule of cases from petitions they granted in the spring. So their docket will be full for the first few months or the last few months of, of 2014. So if cert is granted, say, in October or November, the chances are the argument won't be until sometime in 2015. Uh, if they have an argument in the spring of 2015, they will decide it by the end of June. But that will mean that these marriages will have been on hold for a year and a half. So the question whether they really are on hold and that they have no status except for joint tax filings for the tax year 2013 
what about the tax year 2014? Uh, the, the tax authorities in Utah may take the position, consistent with the governor, that we can't recognize those marriages for 2014. So they, they filed as married for 2013, but they had to file a single for 2014 because we're not going to have a Supreme Court decision until 2015. So clearly there's a need for this ACLU lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that's come up is uh, another lawyer that probably many of our listeners are familiar with has tried to uh, join the case uh, in, in some fashion. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, on the last day of January, just in time for our February issue, uh, Roberta Kaplan, a partner at Paul Weiss here in New York who represented Edith Windsor in the DOMA case in the Supreme Court last year, uh, filed a petition on behalf of three Utah same-sex couples asking to intervene in the appeal and have a chance to participate in the oral argument. Uh, she had already gotten permission from the parties to file amicus briefs, but you need permission from the court, uh, permission from the court uh, to be an intervener, and the parties objected to that. Uh, she said that Judge Shelby's decision didn't address an important issue in the case. Uh, the Utah laws that were being challenged forbid not only uh, same-sex marriage or recognition of same-sex marriages, but also forbid any other legal status that approximates marriage like civil unions or domestic partnerships. So she said no one has really addressed that, and that should be argued before the court. Uh, in order to justify intervening, she has to show that there's some issue that the parties aren't addressing. Uh, but after we went to press, uh, the Tenth Circuit denied her petition. So she'll only be in the party as an amicus, not as uh, an intervener. So and there was some, uh, an article in the New York Times this week, too, about how a lot of the big-name lawyers are trying to enter these cases yes. and uh, having mixed results in, in doing so. Yeah, and, and, you know, one point that might be overlooked is that big-name big lawyers are already in the Utah case because the local counsel who brought the case in Utah have asked the National Center for Lesbian Rights mm -hmm. right. to come in, and Shannon Minter, the legal director there, argued the marriage equality case in the California Supreme yeah. Court back in 2008 – so to, he's no slouch. So, yeah, oh, <laughs> Shannon is a big name yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in LGBT law. Uh, so uh, the absence of Robbie Kaplan isn't a big deal. Yeah. Although, uh, obviously, looking back at what was accomplished in the Windsor case, she now has Supreme Court cred. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, the other big names on marriage equality uh, are Ted Olson and David Boyes, who jumped in on the Prop 8 case. And uh, they decided to jump in on one of the pending Virginia cases. Right. Uh, the, the movement organizations, uh, ACLU in particular, brought a Virginia case in the Western District of Virginia. But while they were putting together their test case, uh, a gay couple in Norfolk jumped the gun and filed their own lawsuit in the Eastern District. And within a short period of time, were contacted by AFER, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, uh, and said, Do you, would you like to have Ted Boys and uh, uh, Ted Olson, rather, and David Boys in on your case? Oh, yeah. And they said, sure, sure, welcome. So uh, Olson and Boys are in on that case, and in fact, that case has just had a summary judgment argument uh, after we went to press. And, yeah. and so it could be that by the March issue of Law Notes, because the judge issued, she indicated she would be issuing a decision soon, yeah. uh, we may actually have a ruling from the Virginia District Court. But, the, the but, I, think, problem, yeah. but I think what you wanted to, uh, to talk about really uh, in the segment also right. was the new decision from Oklahoma. Correct, yep. Uh, which was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Uh, senior District Judge Terrence Kern has been sitting on this case for over 10 years. Well, 
not really sitting the whole time because it's already been up to the Tenth Circuit at least once. Uh, There was an issue in this case as to who were the appropriate defendants, who were the appropriate plaintiffs. Uh, The cases originally filed involved both DOMA and the Oklahoma marriage ban. Uh, By the time Judge Kern ruled last month, it had been whittled down, basically, in his view, uh, to a challenge to one part of the Oklahoma anti-same-sex marriage amendment. And the only defendant left was the clerk in Tulsa who denied a marriage license to the lesbian couple in the case. Uh, And in a ruling that was much narrower than Judge Shelby's decision in Utah, Judge Kern just took this on as a sexual orientation discrimination case. He did not rule on due process. He did not rule on sex discrimination. But he says, as to sexual orientation discrimination in the Tenth Circuit, the precedents say I have to use the rational basis test, which I do. And I find it's irrational. (laughs) I find that the justifications argued by the state do not advance any legitimate state interest, that this uh, constitutional amendment, which was enacted by the voters uh, as part of the wave of anti-same-sex marriage constitutional amendments, was clearly intended for the purpose of discriminating against same-sex couples. And that, standing alone, is not a sufficient justification. And so he struck it down. And uh, he stayed his ruling. Because by the time he issued his opinion, the Supreme Court had stayed the Utah ruling, sending a clear signal to all federal judges out there, if you're going to issue a ruling in favor of same-sex marriage, give the state a chance to appeal before marriages start taking place. Right. So he stayed his own opinion. Uh, the appeal was immediately filed. The Tenth Circuit said we're going to put this on the same fast track as the Utah case because it doesn't make sense not to. Uh, but recognizing that, you know, the Oklahoma Attorney General's office has got to get geared up to handle this, uh, they gave them a little extra time to file their briefs. So although the same three-judge panel is going to hear both cases, they're going to hear the argument in the Oklahoma case a week after they hear the argument in the Utah case. But I can't imagine they're not going to issue one opinion to cover both of them. So this may slightly delay the Utah case. It may not. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's where we stand on, on Utah and Oklahoma. So that means, as of now, we have appeals pending in the Ninth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit. And in the Sixth Circuit, we have an appeal on file from the decision by the federal court in Cincinnati issued in December that Ohio has to recognize a same-sex marriage for purposes of a death certificate. So that's on appeal. So we're in three circuits on marriage, either marriage equality in terms of the right to marry or the right to have the marriage recognized. We're going to be having a decision relatively soon in Virginia, so that will probably go to the Fourth Circuit. So we're getting our circuits lined up. It it seems to me that by the time uh, cert petitions start getting filed, uh, there might be cert petitions from several circuits. All right, very interesting. Uh, We're going to take another short break, and when we return, we'll shift gears to a groundbreaking transgender rights decision out of Maine. We're back discussing the case of Doe v. Regional School Unit 26, recently decided by Maine's High Court. Uh, This was the first time a state court has ruled that transgender students must be allowed to use the bathrooms that match who they are. First, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of the case, Art? Yeah. uh, The uh, court used uh, pseudonyms for the parties to uh, preserve confidentiality. So the parents are identified as John and Jane Doe, and the child is Susan Doe, although... 
Susan, of course, wasn't the child's birth name because this is a child who was born an identified male at birth mm -hmm. based on the external evidence of genitals. That's how doctors do that. Uh, they don't do a genotype test or something like that. So uh, by the age of two, this child was identified as female. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she went off to school, uh, she was wearing sort of gender-neutral dress, but within a few years, uh, she was fully manifesting as female. And uh, the court says, by the time Susan Doe hit third grade, the principal, you know, everyone knew what was going on. Uh, the way the restroom situation was set up for the early elementary years was there were girls' rooms and boys' rooms, but they were single-stall rooms. Uh, they weren't communal uh, restrooms. And so the, there was no big problem with letting Susan Doe use the girls' room. Uh, but then she was getting ready during her fourth grade year. Uh, they decided, you know, we have to do some decision-making here because in fifth grade, the kids start using the communal boys' and girls' rooms. And, you know, which restroom is she going to use? Uh, we, we need a formal uh, decision here about how Susan Doe is going to be treated. Will she be treated for all purposes by the school as a girl? And so they convened a special committee. The parents were represented, uh, school representatives, uh, health care people. And by then, Susan had a formal uh, gender dysphoria diagnosis. So it was certified by a competent medical uh, authority that Susan identified as a woman or as a girl at that point. Uh, so the school said she can use the girls' room. Now, we do have a backup in case a problem occurs. We do have a staff restroom that's unisex, a uh, single stall, and, and if there are problems, she can use that. But at first, there were no problems. But then a problem was sparked by the grandfather of one of the male students, uh, who was the, the boy's guardian, and who found this whole thing very irksome and told his grandson, look, if she's entitled to use that restroom, you're entitled to use that restroom. What their, the, the position of grandpa was that uh, the school has now eliminated the requirement that only boys use the boys' room and girls use the girls' room because this person is both a boy and a girl. Uh, so he said, you just follow her right in there. Wow. And the boy did. And it caused an incident. Uh, there were complaints. And, uh, the school backed down. school backed down. They said, use the unisex room. And the parents were very unhappy about this. And eventually, in fact, they transferred uh, Susan to a different school district. They moved so she could go to a different school district where presumably they were accommodating her. Uh, but in the meantime, they filed a complaint with the Maine Human Rights Commission against the school district, and uh, represented by GLAD, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders from Boston. And they said, look, Maine has a civil rights law that forbids sexual orientation discrimination, and the definition of sexual orientation includes gender identity. Uh, so clearly, it violates the public accommodations law in Maine to tell somebody that you can't go into the restroom of the sex with which you identify. And the... Uh the school district had an interesting argument relying on the sanitary facilities statute. In right. Maine. It's, it seems at some point Maine legislators decided they had to tell school districts that they have to have separate girls' and boys' rooms. Maybe they didn't before then. 
I don't know how old the sanitary code is. I think the version they're talking about here dates back to the 1960s. But in any event, there is a sanitary code, and it says you have to have separate boys' and girls' rooms, and they have to have separate entrances, and they have to be equally good facilities. Uh, and the school district said, well, that clearly says that the legislature wants us to segregate our public school restrooms by sex. And the comeback, of course, is, yeah, well, that's okay. We're not asking you not to have a separate girls' room and boys' room. We're just saying who gets to use them. And uh, the opinion of the Supreme Court here, a six-to-one ruling, they said, well, we can reconcile these two statutes. The sanitary code says what facilities you have to have, but it doesn't tell you what the rules are for their use. And therefore, for that, we look to the Human Rights Act, and the Human Rights Act says you can't discriminate based on gender identity. And it would be discriminating based on gender identity to refuse to recognize a, uh, a person who's been diagnosed as being uh, transsexual and actually identifying as a woman. Mm. And, you know, I, I think there's, a, there's an issue that's being skirted in the opinion that's not being discussed. And that is, uh, I mean, Susan Doe isn't old enough to have surgery. Right, that comes later. They usually they, that's delayed until late teens, or, you know, at the earliest. And so she is going to be a girl with the body of an adolescent boy, including a functioning penis, who's going to be allowed in the ladies' room as a teenager. Right. You know, and I bet in the back of people's minds there is, wow, this is an explosive situation. And this is often brought up whenever sort of transgender uh, anti-discrimination statutes you know, or ordinances are debated. It's, it's always the bathroom, 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 bathroom issue. scenario. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, someone who is taking the hormone therapy is probably not going to be busy trying to sexually assault women in the restaurant. Right, right, right. But, uh, you know, at what point does, does the hormone therapy kick in and, and what is its effect? Uh, it, it seems to me that it's it's just sort of ridiculous. It's sort of like worst-case scenario hypotheticals because we don't have any cases where we, uh, where, we uh, where, where the authorities allow uh, a transsexual woman to use the ladies' room and then they take advantage of that to sexually assault other women. Right. I mean, that's, that's a hypothetical scenario that has no basis in any kind of evidence. Right. So it's it's we're talking about stereotypes and fears here. Yeah. And when you talk about stereotypes and fears, that's not the basis on which you construe a human rights statute that forbids discrimination. Yeah. So the dissenting judge says, look, I agree that uh, on the merits, setting aside the statutes for a moment, this is a good outcome. But I disagree that you can construe that facility statute so narrowly. The, the dissenting judge says, look, clearly the legislature wants – sexually segregated restrooms, and there's no clear answer to how the statute should be construed here. I think it should be up to the legislature to decide. They should go back and give us some clarity. Uh, So that was the dissenter. And the chief justice actually wrote a concurring opinion uh, in the result, but said, I think the dissenter has a really strong point here. I think the legislature should address this and not just leave it to, to judicial decision. So there may be a sequel in Maine. We'll yeah. see uh, if the legislature takes a crack at it. All right. Thank you very much, Art. We're going to take our last short break and finish up in our Of Note segment with a denial of second parent adoption out of New York that is raising a lot of eyebrows.
right, we're going to wrap up this podcast with our Of Note segment. This month we are looking at Matter of Seb C.M., a surrogate's court decision out of Brooklyn here in New York. First, Art, can you tell our listeners what the surrogate's court in New York is? Well, the surrogate's court is a special court that deals with uh, issues of wills and estates and also with uh, issues around custody of children uh, and specifically gets involved in approving adoptions. All right. So now, while normally a surrogate's court decision would not get much attention, this one has. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of the case? Yeah. A, a same-sex couple uh, who were married in Connecticut in 2011 uh, before we had a marriage equality statute in New York, uh, but live in New York, and uh, they want to have a kid. They use donor insemination. Uh, one of the women had a child. Uh, and uh, both of the women's names were put on the birth certificate because uh, New York recognizes their marriage. And the traditional rule uh, is that a child born to a married woman is considered to be the legal child of that woman's spouse. And so both names would go on the birth certificate. No big deal. Uh, why, you would ask, do we need to have an adoption by the non-birth mother if she's already recognized? Well because not every state recognizes same-sex marriages from other states, uh, an issue that's now being litigated before the Sixth Circuit. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, we live in a very mobile society. We, uh, we don't tend to stay in our own state all the time. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. We travel to meet relatives. We travel because of job transfers. And uh, gay and lesbian uh, law specialists advise same-sex couples in situations like this, if you want to be sure, if you happen to be present in a state that doesn't recognize your marriage, and you want to be sure if there's an emergency, a medical emergency, or any other reason, uh, that you need to have proof that both of the uh, women are parents of the child, it's a good idea to do a second parent adoption so you have a court judgment, because a court judgment will be recognized under the full faith yeah. and credit clause. Uh, so this woman, following the legal advice that is, is given in this circumstance, filed a petition uh, before Surrogate Torres in Brooklyn uh, for the second parent to adopt. Right. And Judge Torres said, well, look, you know, in the past, when I've been asked to approve second parent adoptions, I have, because there were always situations where the petitioner was not listed on the birth certificate and was not already recognized in law as the parent of the child. That is, I was granting adoptions to create a new legally recognized parent-child relationship. But here, I'm being presented by, uh, with a situation where under New York law, the petitioner is already the child's legal parent. And she said, I don't think I have authority to grant this petition, to, to allow a legal parent to adopt her own child. She really focused on sort of the theory of adoption law, that yeah. it's a creating a new relationship. Right. And she pointed back to a decision by a New York County surrogate, Kristen Booth Glenn, in one of the leading cases on second parent adoption in New York when she had uh, granted such an adoption. Uh, and she said in that case, it's about recognizing a previously unrecognized parent-child relationship. Uh, so Judge Torres says, look, if I were to grant this petition, it would be like the court saying that this marriage is not like all other marriages. And the marriage equality law in New York says that same-sex marriages shall be treated the same as all other marriages. So, so she said, consistent with that, uh, the petitioner's name was already on the birth certificate. She said, take the birth certificate with you. <laughs> you know, that's your evidence. Uh, 
and uh, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's interesting. The attorney for the uh, petitioner was quoted as saying, "Well, in, in a way, it's a victory because the judge says that same-sex marriages are the equal of all other marriages, and that the presumption of parental status applies to the non-birth parent." But on the other hand, you know, my my clients are a little concerned. If they go out of state, are they going to have problems that would have been solved by having a birth certificate? Now, one assertion that, that Judge Torres made in the case, which uh, many have questioned, she said a state that's not going to recognize the marriage is unlikely to recognize the adoption. But I don't think that's the case because uh, of Section 2 of DOMA, which is still hanging out there, which says the states don't have to give good faith, uh, full faith and credit to same-sex marriages from other states uh, because many states have constitutional amendments that ban recognizing the marriage. And if you don't have an independent uh, authority saying that this is the parent of this child in the context of an adoption decree from a court, you're relying on a relationship that that other state doesn't recognize. So, uh, you know, I think out of an excess of caution, it's still a good idea uh, for people to apply for these second parent adoptions, even if the child is born within a, a same-sex marriage. And it's possible, though I don't know if this is going to be appealed, it's possible this will be appealed. That will go to the second department, which is based in Brooklyn. All right. Well, thank you, Art, for uh, that explanation, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, just a quick note, if you're in the New York area, I hope you can join Art and I next month for Lee Gale's annual dinner, March 20th at Capital. We are very excited to be honoring Mary Bonato, Brian Elner, and Credit Suisse, as well as celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Bar Association and the 20th anniversary of our foundation. Uh, tickets are now available at legale.org. Uh, this and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again. We'll see you next month. <laughs>